Welcome to Plastic Model Mojo, a podcast dedicated to scale modeling, as well as the news and events around the hobby, where we hope to be informative and entertaining and help you keep your modeling mojo alive. We are back again for episode 72 of Plastic Model Mojo. Dave, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing good. How about yourself? Well, we get used to this new recording platform and I'll be A-OK, but I'm about a A-minus right now. It's not bad. <laughs> and we're not alone tonight. Hola, A. Eh? Hola, A. <laughs> eh? Our, uh, our, our uh, resident expat is here with us in the third chair, Jim Bates. What's happening? Just got back from a uh, show at a Hobby Town USA, actually. Really? How was that? It was good. I'll talk about it in Model Sphere. Well, let's just jump right into it, Jim. What's up in your Model Sphere? Well, <laughs> I just got back from a uh, little Gundam show at a Hobby Town in Silverdale, Washington. And uh, I was going out there to promote uh, and try to attract more Gundams to our February show at the Museum of Flight. And there were some pretty impressive uh, Gundams on the table, though I did not uh, see one by Mike Baskat. Well, mine's not impressive anyway. <laughs> I would disagree, but um, yeah, they had uh, they had probably 30, 50 models on the table, and there was some cool-looking stuff there. Did you get any takers for the Museum of Flight thing? So one of the things that I was there for is we have an all-Gundam hobby shop here in town, and I'm going to get it wrong. I think it's International Toy and Hobby, or it might be International Hobby. I think it's International Toy and Hobby um, in the International District of Seattle. And part of the reason was going was to meet up with the owner of that shop uh, because he has a lot of Gundam customers, and I want to get him on board to, uh, to help promote the show. And we're going to have uh, two special displays at the show one is going to be black history month and the other is going to be the world of gundam so i'm trying to get a lot of gundams out in order to uh just have a nice gundam display that's a vibrant area of the hobby man uh, you're you're that's doing, exactly why i want to do it you're doing good work be sure that you hand each of them an ipms usa uh national registration form too hey give me the forms i'll hand them out you got it Tell what you should do you should give them a last a copy of the not the current, but the last issue of Journal. It's got the Gundam on the front cover. <laughs> That's a good idea. Let me. I'll. I'll. I'll message Marie and see if we, how many spares we've got. That's a great idea. Yeah, Dave. Idea. If you could get me a dozen or so spares, that'd be awesome. That's fantastic. Thanks, Mike. That's a great idea. Well, Dave, you're welcome. But what's up in your model sphere? Well, my model sphere is uh, is actually been fairly active. I've finished reading a book on Operation Ironclad, which was the invasion of Madagascar by the British uh, versus the Vichy French forces that uh, were uh, left in place when France proper fell. Uh, and they kind of held Mers el-Kabir and, and the uh, British attack on the French fleet. They kind of had hard feelings, so there was the, the British had to invade the island because they were afraid that the Japanese were going to going to seize it as a base and roam all over the Indian Ocean. So it's a really interesting, really interesting book. Well written, quick read. And Mike, you know from our discussions, I get a lot of my inspiration from reading uh, history books. 
and I really enjoyed this one. There's a DP Casper decal sheet that I happen to own uh, on Operation Ironclad. So uh, uh, reading the book got me to dig that back out, and I'm looking at some stuff. And the other other thing in the model sphere related stuff is I'm doing a deep dive into markings of the Cates at Pearl Harbor. What I would have thought was a simple, straightforward piece of information is not that at all. There's a lot of misinformation out there, a lot of confusion, and uh, it motivated me to sit down and start jotting down some thoughts. I'm going to put them on the blog and probably uh, on our Facebook page, uh, and I might solicit some information in the dojo. Well, that's a good segue to my model sphere. And? We've had uh, some changes around here, Dave and Jim. Yeah. What kind of changes? Well, one, we've uh, launched a Facebook group called the Plastic Model Dojo, and that's been going fun for a couple of days. Oh, it's, it's been new. extremely active. It's uh, pretty new for a couple of days. Now, we're up to about uh, 250-ish members now. That's not posse numbers yet, but uh, we're getting there, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the, the funniest thing was within, uh, the first, uh, gosh, three, four hours, we had, uh, about four modeling fluid posts and then a post on uh, Jimmy Carter's pickup truck from by the old Ravel kit. <laughs> you mean the Bill, Billy Carter, Billy Jimmy, Carter. Yes. Billy Jimmy's Carter. Uh, Jimmy's chagrin. Yeah. More or less. So that's been fun. Um, we encourage everybody out there listening. If you have not already. I hope there's more people listening than that. <laughs> I was blown away by the guy who posted that there were uh, models of the $6 million man fighting random animals. That was totally awesome. I'd never seen but that before. Well, we can, we can hit that one again when we get to our special segment. So don't let me forget, but, but, but yes. Um, another thing that struck me is a bit of a surprise. I, I, maybe I shouldn't have been, but uh, man, already a ton of sci-fi content. And this thing's only two days old. Yep. So I, I thought that was really interesting. People, particularly ones who don't attend Wonderfest or the IPMS USA Nationals, I don't think realize how much science fiction is a growing area of the hobby. And in addition to the dojo, we've we've also launched uh, the 12 Minute Model Sphere, which is a special segment dropped uh, near the first of the month each month, once, one time on our off week to kind of highlight uh, the upcoming episodes and get caught up with uh, what's going on in the dojo and maybe touch base with uh, one of our regular guests or co-hosts. So Jim, get ready to appear on the 12 minute model sphere in the not so distant future. I don't know. Can you put two lawyers on something and keep it under 12 minutes? We'll we'll hook up shock collars. We'll get that done. Oh, okay. Okay. Ooh, can I control that from here? I want Riverside to let me know. No, 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 no. (laughs) (laughs) Which is the other third going on. Uh, We've switched recording platforms, and uh, we're kind of teething our way through that. So bear with us, folks. So, guys, I assume that given that we're recording an episode, that people have modeling fluid in front of them. Mike, what's your modeling fluid? I don't know if I've had this one before on here. The High West Double Rye? No, I don't believe you have. Did I have the other rye or the the Iowa bourbon, maybe? 
Some somebody out there has to listen to all seventy-two past episodes and do a list of what Mike and I drink. Well, this one this one would would only uh, have occurred in the last well since nationals last. I don't think two, you've. Two, I don't two think episodes. you've done. Yeah, I don't think you've done this one before. High West Double Rye, a blend of straight rye whiskeys from Park City, Utah. Now, um, again, we were uh, a bit put back by the uh, generosity of our listeners at uh, the 2022 IPMS Nationals. And we got so much generosity (laughs) that uh, we kind of lost track of who gave us what. Now, some of them I know by geography. Right. Uh, This one I can't figure out. I, I should know if you if you gifted uh, Plastic Model Mojo a High West Double Rye, uh, please let me know so I can thank you profusely for it. We'll get caught up with that at the end, but that's what I'm drinking. Okay, Jim, uh, do you have a modeling fluid? I do, but I'm going to disappoint you both. Uh, as I said, I just before recording got back from the uh, show. And on my way uh, back, I stopped, I talked to the clown's mouth, and I got a, uh, a tea. And uh, this brings up a story that sometimes Dave will call me, and I dread when he calls me and I'm in line at Starbucks, because one time uh, when I ordered my tea, I often, if I'm going to see my paralegal, will off or also order a drink for her. One time I was just on my own, he shouted out, tall, flat, white, and they put it on my order. And now, and now, if we're talking, he mutes me when he talks to the clown's mouth. Oh, for sure. <laughs> so, tea—not Long Island iced tea, not tea with anything in it. Tea, hot green tea, eh? Oh well, good. Welcome, welcome to Seattle. Yeah, welcome to Seattle. What about you, Dave? What do you got? Well, uh, I am drinking also a brown liqueur or liquor that uh, uh, we received in Omaha. Also, I don't remember who gave it to us. It is, and it's also a rye. It's a Templeton rye. It's a four-year aged rye, eighty proof, and uh, so far I'm enjoying it, which is kind of surprising because ryes are not my thing, but. Uh, uh, I'll I'll give you a report at the end, but uh, so far so good. Well, maybe somebody will claim it. I remember it. I remember it. Please do if you if you were the person who is it not from Michigan? Uh, I I don't have the bottle in front of me. I just okay. know it's a I could be wrong. Rye. All right. Well, we won't we won't speculate. Yeah. Somebody reach out. Dave, the mailbag has got a few things in it. Good. That's that's good good news. A little light by comparison, but uh, still this is this is a good amount. All right, up first, Jonathan Bryan. And Jonathan's from uh, Croydon, England, and he's he's messaged us several times. <laughs> His is a carpet monster listener mail. Okay. Uh he was building uh well, it's a while back now. Gosh, almost 10 years. He, he was building Trumpeter's uh, 48-scale uh, Sukhoi 15TM. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, flag and G. Yep, have the kit. And uh, except seventy second scale, of course. Yeah, <laughs> he lost a part that spans from forward of the cockpit to midway along the spine behind the cockpit. So no small piece. Right. Has no idea where he put it. Well, of course, it fell into the carpet monster and was eaten. Well, he must have some pretty deep carpet if it swallowed that part. Yeah. <laughs> in 48th scale. Yeah. He says he couldn't find a place to put in requests for spare parts from Trumpeter. Probably wouldn't have done any good anyway. Yes. Uh, so he got on uh, China's eBay equivalent, Taobao. Did that ring a bell? I, I don't know. Well, anyway, he found the Chinese version. Well, that's the Chinese version of eBay. He found a second kit, Flag and A, different kit, same right. basic airframe. Right. Uh, 20 bucks for a replacement part, which really isn't bad. No, no, that, that actually isn't bad, but it, it's frustrating. And what's more frustrating is as soon as the kit arrives from China, you find the part in the carpet monster. Well, he didn't cop to that because he sent a picture of the finished model, but he is asking for a spare part E1 from Trumpeter Sukhoi 15 or finished kit they're looking to throw away because uh, <laughs> he's got another kit he'd like to finish, but now it's missing the part. Oh, okay. Well, if any listeners out there have a, have that spare kit uh, that you know they can part out or they've stripped it for parts and they still have that part, Get in touch with us. We'll reach out and see if we can hook him up. Next is Steve Anderson. Uh, and I'm glad he spells this out for me. Matamita, Minnesota. Matamita. I'll have to Google map that one, figure out where that is. Uh, Steve used to be an M577 driver, which is the uh, big tall box command version of the M113. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yep, I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, he's wanting to build one uh, when he was in service, which is a lot more contemporary to the Vietnam era, which is what the Tamiya kit represents. Right. Yep. And uh, he's asking if anyone knows of another kit or aftermarket parts that focus on the exterior that might be uh, might be available. I I don't know. He's he's not he's not real thrilled about scratching any of this or the interior for that matter. <laughs> uh, you know, I did some poking around when I got this email, and there's some a couple of German companies. Um, no, this isn't going to be the holy grail by any stretch of the imagination. A perfect scale model bow and MR model bow. Mm-hmm. Both those companies uh, do some modern, you know, kind of NATO Cold War era stuff. Right. Uh, but I don't know if they've got anything for this particular video. They may have some upgrades for M113 that might be a- applicable to, you know, the common features between the 13 and the, and the 557. And the 557, yeah. Uh, but I, I don't know. Really, there's no other kit. And if you didn't want to go the resin route, you might look at uh, like Academy's M113A3. And Tamiya's A2, those might have parts you could cabbage to upgrade the exterior. I don't know. I'm not really familiar with this vehicle. The other one that's out there is AFV did a upgrade of the Academy M113 with more interior, too. 
I don't know how that would apply to the 577, but that's what that uh, AFE club kit is. Ooh, that that could be useful if it's if it's I don't know how much they changed between marks, but yeah, I have um, no it's idea. An old, it's an old vehicle, so I'm sure it changed. Yep. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I, I gosh, when I was a teenager, I, our National Guard used to have this day. They did this little mock battle, and then they they had a small arms collection there. They'd break out and let you look at and shoot blanks through some of them and stuff. But uh, I rode in the back of an M113. There's there's lots of improvement there for creature comfort, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Go deaf in that thing. Yes. Kenneth Reed has written in for suggestions on uh, manipulating metal cables. Now, again, this is from episode 71 and my lamenting trying to find the right cable for my catapult. Right. It's kind of a lot of things. There's some advice into that, a technique, and a uh, a goof, gaff, and blunder. Well, give us the goof, gaff, and blunder. Well, no, I got I to back up all the way because... Uh, he was trying to make a brake cable, parking brake cable for, I assume, a model car. Maybe yeah. not. Uh, and he was using a guitar string. Now, he knows for my application, it's not the right texture, but the the process would be the same if you're using metal. He heated this up to his uh, red hot to anneal it. Yep. And uh, then bent it the way he needed it. But the problem was he went to blow on it to cool it off. And he gave it a little kiss. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. So he branded this little horseshoe on his lip for a few weeks. <laughs> but that one was tough to explain. I bet it was. You burned yourself, Jim. I'm trying to think if I've ever burned myself in modeling. I don't think so. I think it's mostly stabbings and, and chopping skin open for the most part. Yeah, that's that's probably the most common by far. <laughs> yeah, I, I still think that that's a good way to bend the metal. But the, the problem I have with the metal is is we've got like a big sweeping bend in it already that you just can't put enough tension in it to straighten it out. Yeah, if it's glu- if it's glued to gl- glued to a piece of plastic on the other end. Yeah, I could I could be wrong, but I think this this issue is coming to a close. So, um, I think uh, it was uh, B J DeBecker Panzer Concepts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he sent us a, a Facebook message, and uh, he was mentioning uh, what's it's another beading cord, but but silk. Yeah, and I'd mentioned that I w- I'd found some nylon upholstery thread that I think thought was going to work, but I, the the silk intrigues me because being natural, I think that might be. Uh, I think the nylon's going to be a little adverse to paint. Yeah, and I don't think the silk would be. No, I think the silk would absorb it. So. I'm I'm focusing in on it. I'm getting closer. <laughs> Maybe I'll actually finish the model at some point. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure all the listeners would be appreciative. And me. Yeah. Ryan Mullins from Fulgham, Kentucky. Ful- where the heck is Fulgham? I had to Google it. It is uh, in the uh, far west part of the state. It's uh, southwest of Mayfield. Oh, wow. That is. Well, Ryan has got back into modeling recently and picked up the podcast, and uh, he's chugging along with his first armor project. So, Fulgham, Kentucky. All right. Thanks for joining, Ryan. I've I've been down in that area before. I've been in Court and Mayfield before, but I've okay. never passed through Fulgham. Well, it's off the beaten path, I think. It is indeed. Bob Bear, the voice of Bob. Always good to hear from the voice of Bob. 
You discuss an email about people going from contest to contest, taking their models on a tour. Yep. I believe there's a band that also follows the same events. The Grateful Modeling Undead. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, that's bad. With their big hits, A Touch of Grey Polystyrene. <laughs> Friend of the P.E. Devil. <laughs> and 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 trucking my one two hundred Yamato. <laughs> Bertha, okay. she don't build no more. <laughs> when when did when did this become a music podcast? I was just going to say, you put me and Mike on, it becomes a music podcast, don't you yes, think? Yes, yes. <laughs> it's, it's listening to you and Mike talk music is exactly like listening to you and Evan talk stug or uh, Mike and Evan talk stugs. Father Deacon Raphael Shelton from Oak Ridge, Tennessee, always hitting us every every so often. Yep. Uh He's offering some resources, digital resources for uh, how to. Remember oh, that? really? Yes. Yeah. So somebody wanted to, to know if there were modeling books in electronic format. Well, he, he references on the bench, uh, episode 144. They, they were talking to publisher Kevin Futter and uh, KLP Publishing is all digital. Yep. yep. Uh, Kambach actually has a, quite a few digital publications. Oh, have they converted all of theirs to digital uh, as well? I don't, I don't quite a few and all. I don't know if that's the same thing, but uh, right. he he provides a link to that, which we'll we'll put in the show notes. I uh, actually, um, you you said there was a shout out uh, in your last episode, or I think so, or maybe two episodes ago, to the latest fine scale modeler. And well, fine scale modeler hasn't blown me away. They've started doing this digital download that you can also buy if you're not a subscriber. And I bought a couple of those, and they were pretty impressive. Uh, one of them, well, a couple of them had hurricanes in them, so that's why I bought them. But one had not only the uh, fine-scale digital download, but you got a whole copy of the Weathering Magazine with it. So I got oh, it on wow. sale for like four bucks, and it was totally worth it. Hmm. Uh, he says AK also has digital stuff available through AK Interactive app on Apple and Android. And there's also various titles uh, available for borrowing through archive.org. And I'll, I kind of looked at this real quick, and it looked kind of interesting. Uh, and actually, How to Build Dioramas by Shep Payne's on there. That's a good book. Uh, that sure is. <laughs> I mean, it may be it may be dated as far as some of the products and, and stuff that we have now, but uh, you talk about understanding the theory about what makes a good diorama oh yeah absolutely you can't can't go wrong with shep paint it's interesting Uh, a couple years ago when i started getting to armor i picked up the shep paint modeling armor books and i got one of the original issue and then after shep passed uh, there was an updated one and what i found really interesting is they're kind of the same book certainly the updated one has a lot more of the modern stuff in it but when they changed the drawings in a couple places from what obviously was hand-drawn to digital, they weren't as helpful. And I thought it was really interesting that they updated and had the nice, pretty-looking graphics, but the old line drawing actually gave more information. So I'm glad I bought both. It was nice to have the updated book, but with the old drawings in it. Moving along. Here's one from your neck of the woods, Jim. Tim Nelson. 
Hey, I know that guy. It's too tall. Just right, Tim Nelson. Hey, don't don't play into his propaganda. <laughs> well, he was enjoying Steve Hustad's segment on our last episode, and he brings up 3D printed figures from a company called Reed R E E. Excuse me, R E E D Oak. Reed Oak, based in France. And I, we got a URL. We'll forward along, but. Uh, They've got figures in a lot of scales, but it's a 3D printed outfit. So they've got some pretty good figures that uh, they can do in 72nd scale. So, uh, and he's actually sent me a photograph where he's used a few of these. So we'll have to, we'll have to post those up somewhere. And if you're inter- interested in small scale figures, particularly 72nd scale, you might want to check these out because they, 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 I look, they did look pretty good. I've got one of them. Um, I actually might have introduced him. I don't know, but I've got one and it's amazing. It, it up until, and I got it maybe a year or two years ago. It was one of the most impressive 3d things I'd ever seen. Maybe the only complaint I would have is much like me. It's probably a little rounder than people were in world war two. Um, but it was beautifully printed. And they have the the un, most unusual business name for a, a 3D printed mo, uh, figure company, Reed Oak Rubber Composites, which <laughs> doesn't at all sound like a 3D figure printing company. But they're they're they've got some really beautiful figures. Yeah, they're really nicely done. They're not cheap, but they're really nicely done. I think I've joked with you guys, and I don't know if I've joked in public, that when you listen to the posse or you listen to the mojo, when you hear my name, you've got a drink. And that was totally eclipsed when Steve Husted said my name. That might be the most exciting thing that's happened to me in modeling ever. <laughs> oh, Jim, I'll get you an autograph. <laughs> I, I don't want an autograph until he does his book I was trying to convince him to do. I, I would... I would buy a book from him all day long. Heck, I'd buy multiple copies just to make sure it was successful. You know, like I I don't understand how he's such an amazing modeler and he's hardly published. He should have a book. Yes, I agree. Up next is Victor Carlson. And I believe he's from Sweden. We've talked to him before. Yeah. And using model tools for other things, magnifiers and exacto knives from for uh, removing wooden splinters. Now I'm, I'm guilty of uh, hillbilly surgery myself. <laughs> yep. Yes. St- stuff comes in handy, man. <laughs> yes, it does. Yes, it does. And in closing from the email section of this listener mailbag, Michael Karnalka from uh, New York city. Are there model companies that you flat out avoid due to past experiences? Dave cannot say Mach 2 or Fonderie miniatures. Dang! Yeah, but Jim can say Mach 2. <laughs> the first two that come to my lips are Mach 2 and Fondle Me miniatures. <laughs> and, and having watched Scott Skippy King carve a BT-1 out of the Volome plastic that they maintain was a VT, uh, BT-1... I don't completely avoid Valome, but I think long and hard b- before I pull the trigger on a Valome kit. I have two. One is Mach 2, and the other one is Beechnut. Now it's Ooh. moved because they don't exist anymore, but those were some scary short-run kits. Yes, those were awful. Mike? 
what about what about in your sphere? Uh, in the thirty fifth scale armor sphere, it would be anything from Italeri that was made after, gosh, probably into the nineties, like nineteen ninety four, nineteen ninety two. After that, yeah, when he started turning out the the, the the Panthers and the Tigers and the Yog Panthers and all those really, really not so great kits. That'd be mine. And you know what surprises me you didn't say? Alan. I would expect less of them, so I would accept more. Okay. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> I, I understand. You're saying that it's not a hard no. It's not a hard no. See, that's with, and I hate to, to break Michael's rule, but with Mach 2, it is a hard no. <laughs> Was there anything on uh, Messenger this, this past two yes, weeks? As a matter of fact, there were there were several. The first one I want to mention is uh, when we got back from the IPMS Nationals, I, on our Facebook page, offered the 48-scale convention decals to the first person who responded. And Simon Lovat from Australia was the first person to respond, um, or as I call him, Lord Lovat. Uh, I just want him to know I haven't forgotten him. Your your decals will be mailed out. Life has just intervened, and, and August has been particularly busy. A listener, Paul Toutant, reached out to compliment me on the fact that, unlike Dave Goldfinch, I apparently can pronounce people's names. Now, he thought it was because I knew French, which I do not. It's just that in high school, I went to school with a person with that last name, so I learned to pronounce it. So, uh, hey, as long as I'm getting compliments on my pronunciations instead of corrections, I'll take that any day of the week. And uh, finally, Rod Kuntz uh, reached out and asked a question, which is he's planning to go to the Nats next year. And his question was, do I have to enter my model on the first day of the convention in order to get it in the contest? The answer to that question is no. You have until Friday the cutoff is a little bit different for each convention. They all set their own cutoff, but it is Friday sometime in the afternoon uh, to get your model entered because judging happens starting at six or seven o'clock on Friday night. And all the models at a national are judged between six or seven and midnight one or two or however late they have to go on Friday night. So you don't have to get there and get your model entered on the first day of the convention, which is Wednesday afternoon. You can get there whenever you want, as long as you get there by Friday afternoon and get your model entered by Friday afternoon, uh, you're, you're still going to be able to participate. Well, that's it for listener mail. Keep those messages coming. Uh, email us at plasticmodelmojo at gmail.com or reach out via Facebook. If you're a person who does Facebook, you can DM us uh, on Facebook. And additionally, now that we've got the Plastic Model Dojo Facebook group, you can reach out to us there. You can not only post your model, 
but you can crowdsource answers to questions. We've got, as Mike said, 250 plus people participating, uh, lots of really good modelers. And, uh, you know, don't be afraid to post there and uh, not only showing us finished finish builds and in-process stuff, but, you know, if you've got a question, if you're stuck on something, crowdsource the answer. This is the point in the episode where I ask you, when you're done listening to this episode, if you haven't already done it, uh, please go to whatever podcast app you're using and rate us. Please give us five stars. It helps drive up our visibility on whatever app you're using so that more people will find us. Additionally, if you wouldn't mind, I know we all know somebody who is a modeling friend who doesn't listen to this podcast. If you know somebody, please introduce them to our podcast. They may not listen to podcasts at all. You may have to show them how to do it, but we would appreciate it. Uh, it is the best way for us to continue to grow our listening audience. We continue to grow even after two years. I've got to be, I've got to be honest. Mike and I were, were both still surprised that two plus years into this, we're still growing and that's great. So do us the favor. If you like the, the, to listen, if you're enjoying what we do, you can thank us by going ahead and telling a friend. In addition to our podcast, we encourage you to listen to the others out there. You can do so by going to modelpodcast.com. Uh, it's a consortium website set up with the help of Stuart Clark from uh, Scale Model Podcast. And you can go to modelpodcast.com and get a banner link to all the other podcasts out there in the model sphere who are participating. Uh, in addition to that, there's one other podcast we encourage you to check out. It's it's uh, Modelers in Ukraine. It's a, it's a podcast put out by... Chris Meddings, and uh, it's uh, all about uh, the modelers and manufacturers in the Ukraine who are uh, enduring this war and still managing to pump out some uh, good product and content. In addition to the podcast, you can check out our blog and YouTube friends. We'd like to mention uh, Inch High Guy, Jeff Groves, the Inch High blog, All Things 72nd Scale, Chris Wallace, Model Airplane Maker, a great YouTube channel and blog you need to check out, and Sprue Pie with Frets with Stephen Lee. You want to check that one out as well. Lots of great content and commentary on the hobby from Steven. And Jim, go ahead and plug your your little uh, YouTube channel there, sir. Well, I uh, have this character called A Scale Canadian who has his own TV show called A Scale Canadian TV. I'll be dropping one tomorrow night uh, at some point. I also just set up a, uh, a Scale Canadian uh, Facebook page. I'm not sure why. But I was told to do it by Scott Gentry. And if Scott tells me to do something, I listen. And uh, I've got a blog, which is also, oddly, a scale Canadian. And uh, there was a post today because I finished a model last night, which was, oddly, a Death Star from Star Wars. So more sci-fi. But really what I want to plug uh, a little bit ahead of time is the 2023 Northwest Scale Modeler Show. It's going to be February 18 and 19 of 2023 at the Museum of Flight. We're going to celebrate uh, Black History Month and have an, uh, explore the exciting world of Gundam and hopefully have a thousand plus models on display for a great weekend of modeling. So if you're in the Seattle area in February, 
try to dodge the rain and come on over to the Museum of Flight. Uh, one last one that we should mention, YouTube's Panzermeister 36, our own Evan McCallum. Uh, Evan just dropped a uh, YouTube episode in the last 24 hours on the detailed build of the new Ryefield Stug. So uh, you always want to check Evan out and subscribe to his channel if you haven't done so already. Finally, if you're not a member of IPMS USA, or IPMS Canada, or IPMS Norway, or whatever whatever national chapter of IPMS covers the country that you're in, please consider joining IPMS USA and all of the IPMS national organizations do a lot for modeling in their respective countries. So it would be it would be a personal favor to me and it would be something that I think ultimately you would find fulfilling if you would please join your national IPMS chapter. Guys, let's take a break here and have a word from our sponsor, Model Paint Solutions. Plastic Model Mojo is now brought to you by Model Paint Solutions, your source for harder steam back airbrushes, David Union power tools, and laboratory-grade mixing, measuring, and storage tools for use with all your model paints, be they acrylic, enamels, or lacquers. Check them out at www.modelpaintsolutions.com. Well, guys, it's time for Come and Make It to Texas. 2023. Cannot wait to get to San Marcos, man. August 2nd through the 5th, 2023, the IPMS National Convention in San Marcos, Texas. It is 332 days away from this event. Now, they're not doing a countdown, so maybe we need to stop. I don't know. I could go either way with that. No, we need to continue to count down because if nothing else, it gets me motivated and excited. And besides, this is going to be the best birthday present for me that there ever was. My birthday's August 5th. That's going to be the last day of their convention. Well, the real issue is at the front end of the convention, Dave. Yeah. Because that's somebody else's birthday. Uh, well, we're going to have to leave on my wife's birthday. and there, <laughs> there, are going, there are going to be some serious negotiations to accomplish that. All right. Well, we warned the hell out of everybody. Yeah. Apparently, Jim didn't get the memo. <laughs> no, I just honestly, I totally spaced that Friday night was when we were supposed to uh, look for hotels and then it sold out. So I'll be somewhere else, I guess. There are a lot of satellite hotels. So, you- well, I've also I've also got a couple offers um, for couches. So it's it's not the end of the world. But I was listening to on the bench today and nobody told me it was going to be 110. So. I might just stay home because I'm not sure I could survive 110. <laughs> oh, please. You it's don't... not 110 in the hotel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You don't... It was hot in Omaha. Did we care? No. Why? Because we were inside the whole time. That's, That's the... not true. You made me walk to a restaurant and I almost died. Oh, please. But, did, but you didn't, Jim. But I didn't. didn't. It was close, though. Well, we'll keep you guys informed with whatever else is coming up for this convention in the in the future. But for for tonight, all we got is the uh, the primary window for uh, room reservations has closed. It's a sellout. There are satellite hotels. Uh, they're fairly close, to be honest. Yeah, they're all um, within a block or so. I mean, they are within walking distance. And, and this Embassy Suites is not as big as the one in Omaha, right? 
And there's no other adjoining hotel to the convention center. So kind of a losing proposition for them, I guess, to to make everybody happy. But uh, it's going to be fine, folks. Get a room and get to the show. Absolutely. Well, guys, we've been planning this episode for a while. At least I have. And I've encouraged you folks to think about it a little bit. The title is Waxing Nostalgic. And uh, we just kind of wanted to poke around at, at the aspect of nostalgia in this in this hobby, whether it's our motivation for building, what it makes us build, uh, the kind of memories it's built for us in our uh, in our modeling journey, and then a little later we've got a couple of interviews we'll get to. But uh, you know, for me, I'll start because I've got the mic right now. <laughs> Good idea. <laughs> You're driving. I really like the nostalgia aspect of this hobby and, and I got started at a fairly young age with my dad. We, we built a monogram B24 together. Then we built this big God 16th scale Ravel 70s conversion van thing. He, big, huge model, 12 scale or something big thing. <laughs> we, we built that too. And then after that, it was all me and I, you know, I burned through about all of monograms, 48 scale stuff and, single engine anyway. And, and, uh, another thing I was doing was, uh, all the airfix H O double O figures, mm-hmm. not, not modeling, but, but collecting them all and creating these epic battles on, on the billiard table downstairs and, and all that. But, uh, still today I, I, can, I find myself looking at these old kits and wanting to buy them. And I've bought a few, I, I must admit. Uh, the Airfix Bofors project was my f- kind of first nostalgia build. And I've, I've racked up a couple more now that I, they're in the stash. But uh, Dave, I know you don't like old kits, but something's got to be pull at your heart strings a little bit. Absolutely. I do. Oh, listen. M- my motto is life is too short to build old crappy kits. I am not going to go back and build a kit that I built when I was 13, 14, 15, because the odds are that that kit has been replaced by a better kit. But that does not mean that I don't f- feel the nostalgia pull, the pull on the tug on the memory and the heartstrings uh, when I see an older kit that I built was when I was in my teens. In fact, I own a copy. The first 72nd scale aircraft kit that I built was the Ravel PB, PB4Y1, basically the Navy version of the Liberator, uh, with working landing gear and flaps, mind you. Um, I bought it on December 8th, 1973. And don't ask me why I remember that date, but I remember it as if it would has been tattooed on my arm. And I actually own a shrink wrap in the box of that same kit in that same box because the nostalgia was so strong for the memory of having, you know, it's molded in blue plastic uh, and it's a, a white over blue scheme. And I painted the white and used the blue plastic as the blue. I mean, all of the stuff that we did as kids. And I I remember that as if it was yesterday. And I don't know why. 
So I still feel the nostalgia. In general, though, I'm not going to build one of those kits because I, I'm just not. I'm not going to invest that time. I'm bad with. I am. I am slow, and I am bad with modern kits. And I know how much harder those older kits are. So, but yeah, no, I get the nostalgia. Well, I have a little bit different experience just because I grew up uh, in Canada. And one of the things that really strikes me oddly for you Americans was you grew up on these cheap monogram kits. And the only time I ever really saw those kits was either at a specialist hobby show, because remember, they're imports from the USA, and or when I was in the USA on vacation or something. And in Canada, the monogram kits were pretty pricey. So up till 1986, I lived in Canada, and I grew up on Matchbox. Uh, some Airfix, the first kit I ever built was a F86 Sabre Dog, and I've got, it was actually an MPC boxing of the Airfix kit. Um and it's got, I've got one of those in the collection here. But I absolutely love the purple range of Airfix kits. Or sorry, Matchbox kits. And built most of them as a kid. And what I find interesting about Matchbox is they spent a lot of time marketing two-color plastic. And nothing about that even as a kid attracted me. But the box art, the Roy Huxley box art, was unbelievable. Um Things like the Hawker Fury or the Lysander or the Dooley Bird Mustang, the Corsair, are still some of my favorite artwork. And in the 90s, I would, you know, feel bad for all the Matchbox kits that didn't have homes that I saw at shows and I would buy them. And, I, you know, I love the box. I love how they had the little window in the back. You know, it was everything was awesome. I love looking at the instruction sheets. And it took me a long time to realize, and and I can't believe I'm saying this, Dave was right. Um, (laughs) There is no reason for me to own a Matchbox Spitfire or a Matchbox Zero or a Matchbox Corsair. Um, And it's more just the packaging and and just the memories. I'm never going to build these kits, so I got rid of a few of them. But on the other hand, there are still Matchbox kits that even to this day hold up. The Hawker Fury, the P-12, the Nordun Norseman, the Siskin. Those have never been better, quite honestly. Yeah. Um, Private, privateer. Well, the, I'm not going to say the Privateer is good. It has never been bettered, but yes. it's not saying much for it. Um, and... It's interesting to me because I spent a lot of time wanting to be a nostalgia modeler and wanting, you know, I sometimes say when I hear Dave talk about um, Steve Hustad as his modeling hero, I sometimes say mine is Mike Grant. He used to do take these old Matchbox and Airfix kits and make them look awesome. And I always wanted to do that. And then I had this wake up call of one, this isn't fun. And two, um, I'm not that good. So I think what it's kind of come down to, to me, is it's the draw of the the box art. It's a draw of the packaging. I don't want to build these things. So my solution was um, a couple years ago, somebody did a golden age of um, Matchbox book. And I've uh, called my my Pittsburgh uh, hookup and ordered one of those because I think I'm better off 
having a book with the box art to look at than having a box of matchbox kits that I think I'm going to turn into something great someday because those won't get built. I make fun of Jim all the time. I pick on him, et cetera, et cetera. But I confess, when I walk by a table and I see the old MPC, uh, what what was it, the three silhouettes? Pro- profile what, series. The profile series. Because a lot of what I built as a teenager when I got into 72nd scale aircraft, the MPC profile series were just, they were catnip for me. I mean, you got three separate sets of markings. There were three wildly different ways you could do the kit. And there, there is so much of my early modeling life that that w- basically was formed around those kits. I'm not sure that I would be a 72nd scale aircraft modeler today were it not for all of those and the fact that they really were eye-catching and really, they, I mean, they marketed to my sweet spot. I do remember, as Jim mentioned, the matchbox kits with the two-color uh, plastic, which I've got to confess, Jim's Jim is right. It never made sense to me, even as a even as a, uh, a teenager. But the little window, the little cellophane window in the back of the box, where you could actually see the sprues. I don't know who did that, but that was marketing genius. What's what's interesting about that, and I only learned this later, that was not on the re- original Matchbox releases. Um, the original Matchbox releases were in an actual box, not the open-ending thing. But I love that. I think the other thing I loved about Matchbox, besides the amazing artwork, was you did get two decal choices. And they tended to do weird things like put Canadian markings in a lot of their kits. And Mike's already mentioned the privateer. That included decals in it for a one-off Canadian transport version of the privateer called the Rockcliffe Ice Wagon. And I just thought that was so cool. And it makes me wonder some days, did I become a modeler of Canadian subjects as a combination of being a Canadian and then um, buying all these Matchbox kits? And it's just, they were so cool. Now, what... I don't get about nostalgia, um, and I'm going to tie this back to Matchbox in a second, is going older to the box scale kits. I never understood that. One of the things I loved about Matchbox is they were all constant scale to 72. And the one thing I didn't build a lot of, and I wish I had built more of, was the 76 scale armor. And apparently that, was it 4%, made a big difference to me as a kid. I didn't love those as much. That being said, if there's anybody out in Majovia who's got a uh, Monty's Caravan they want to sell for too much money, ring me up. Uh, I always wanted (laughs) one of those as a kid. Never got it. Um, I will tell the funny story of one of the Matchbox kits I always wanted as a kid was uh, the Victor, the tanker. And uh, never could afford it. It was like $21, which seems like so much money. And one of the first things after, out of law school after getting a job, I went out and found a Matchbox uh, Victor. And um, as an adult, it didn't live up to the expectations young Jim had of it. Yes. 
Do you remember what the what the Matchbox uh, mold maker was was known as? Do you remember the nickname? The Matchbox Trench Digger. The mad the mad trencher. What's What's interesting about that is it's become such a trope. But to me, yes, Matchbox kits had terrible trenches. The problem was like some of them had raised panel lines. Like I remember their P40 had these awful raised panel lines on the wings. And it would be like they glued two by fours to the P40's wing. That's how bad these were. Um, and I remember buying one of those at a show. You, Yeah, you were probably there, Dave, telling me not to buy it. And loving the box art and then opening the box as an adult and saying, man, why did I love these so much as a kid? I do think a lot of the attraction of this, when you touch one of those kits, one of those boxes today, I think you're instantly transported back to the time that you built it as a teenager. When you were just gluing it together, painting it, decaling it and finishing it in a day or two. And there was a joy to doing that. And I think that the attraction of kit collecting, where people buy these kits not to ever build them. I mean, there are, there are kit collectors, and we'll interview a, a guy whose business relates to that, where there is a nostalgia for just the box. And the parts, you know, all never intended to be built. But I think that it brings back the joy that you had when you did build it as a much younger version of you. Well, my Matchbox thing was was not as a teenager, because by the time I was a teenager, I was living in the U.S. But my love of Matchbox was as a, a younger child. And I have a memory of the Brewster Buffalo. Now we can go into the fact that this is the most loved plane by modelers that nobody in the real world loved. Except the Finns. The Finns liked it. My uncle Ron, who kind of got me into modeling and aviation, gave me one for Easter and uh, I built it. It was, it was pink and off white were the two colors. And I remember building it and flying it around the house on Easter. And I have one of those. Uh, It is pink and, uh, and off-white, and there's a part of me that wants to try to put it together in those colors, put the decals right on the plastic back like I did as a kid. Can you (laughs) figure out, you know, most of the times the two colors that Matchbox used made some sort of sense, but with the Brewster Buffalo, pink and white made no sense to me, and I don't know why they did it. Well, I've got a Siskin that's also in pink and white. I get the feeling that they started out doing the two-color thing as we'll try to do this. Because I remember building their Zero that I think was green and orange plastic. Yeah. Um, I think what happened is they started out saying, let's do this. And then they just started whatever was the cheapest. And that's what they threw in the hopper. Um, (laughs) Because some of the color choices made no sense. Now, some of their bigger kits, and, and I know the purple range was the little ones but they'd often do a sprue in black and that's with the propellers and the wheels. That made sense. Yeah. Um, but yeah, pink and white for a Buffalo, not sure what the molding machine was doing that day. Maybe the mold maker had a, a lunch where he uh, enjoyed some um, hippie lettuce and, and came back and made a big mistake and what happened. Now, Mike, you actually recently, at least semi-recently, 
actually built one of these older kits. What, I mean, I, I know from talking with you that you enjoyed the experience. Oh yeah. I enjoyed the heck out of it. What particular joy did you get out of it? Cause obviously it was a little more difficult than building a modern kit, right? Oh, without doubt it, it was that, but it was taking that, that same kit and building it to a level that I'm capable at now as an adult that actually met the expectation, the image in the mind's eye that I had as a kid when I tried to build it the first time. So were you making the 13 year old you happy? Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> With, without doubt. The mind is an amazing thing. I mean, I do think that for a lot of modelers out there, uh, particularly for these folks who do not really model, but they just collect the kits, they collect the boxes and the sprues and all. Um, but even for modelers who build, I, I think that there is something primal in the back of your brain that making 13 year old you happy brings a ridiculously out of proportion amount of joy to modern you. Well, that's true. And, and I want to touch back on Jim was talking box art and even as a, an adult, you know, he, he liked the airfix or he liked the matchbox stuff. I like the airfix stuff near the airfix air stuff for the most part. Uh, I don't know all painted by the same guy, but a, a gentleman named Roy cross painted, painted most of it. And man, some of those are just absolutely brilliant. And it, it, what's, what's amazing is this stuff was commercial art. Yes. But some of it was does done to such a high fidelity. It, it's just amazing. And some of the early Ravel stuff was as well. Yeah. Um, there was some interesting artwork with the early monogram, but uh, I don't know. I think for the American manufacturers, Ravel was, was knocking it out of the park, particularly in the sixties. Well, I think what's interesting about both Roy Huxley and, and Mr. Cross was the, it, the, they drew you in the action on these boxes was unbelievable. They they showed they did a good job of of saying this is what this airplane did and look how cool it is and you know we don't see that I think some box art is getting better today um, I think in the last few years it's been interesting to see kind of box art return to much more prominence especially Edward I think does this well the new Airfix but it was just something about the sense of action that both the Matchbox and the and the Roy Cross. Um, Airfix kits had that were unbelievable. Well, I don't know if you all remember the 80s and 90s when companies for, among other things, legal reasons, went away from box art and went toward photos of the actual built kit on their box tops. Mm -hmm. And the, the much less motivating uh, aspect of the fact that there was a picture of the actual model rather than one of these artistic representations. Um, I think it really hurt the hobby in that period because of the fact that they went to 
a photograph of the built-up version of the kit, and even sometimes they weren't that great. But even if they were good, they were not nearly as motivating as inspirational box art. I would agree. So, Dave, you have no interest in tackling one of those old kits and uh, applying your modern your modern learned skill to it. If you and Jim jointly drag me into a nostalgia build, as long as the as long as the the rules are wide enough to allow me to accommodate, um, you know, my choices, I probably could get dragged into one. But again, it would not be, I have really zero interest in building an old kit to remind me of what I experienced when I was younger. I don't know. It's just the way my brain is built where I love seeing the kits. I love touching the kits. I'll occasionally buy one and put it, put it back. Um, the Ravel kit on the, of the PB four Y one. Uh, I will tell you the box art on it is awesome. And I am convinced that it's one of the things that motivated me to buy and build what in (laughs) In modern and by any modern understanding, is a crappy kit. Okay, just by by any modern definition, I can go out and build a modern PB4Y1, and I would get much more enjoyment out of it than building the the kit I have in the box art with the original boxing. Uh, but I I understand the enjoyment that people get from it. Would you, Dave, would you, if you were to do that, say we did a build, would you pick something like the Norseman or the Twin Otter or the Privateer that's just never been kitted? I I think my motivations would partly be, I, I'll be honest with you, the Norseman is a, uh, a, a prime example. I'll tell you another one that stands out to me is you remember the Airfix blister packs? Yeah. They're, they're just, uh, they're, those were brilliant marketing. Uh, just absolutely. They were inexpensive. You could see the sprues. They had really good box art on the, on the hanger. Um, I have the Airfix 01, the mm-hmm. bird dog from Vietnam. I, you know, in 72nd scale, I really don't think that kit has been bettered. I could see myself doing something like that. So, Dave, this is a little bit creepy. You said that I was on the uh, eBay a few nights ago. There is a new tool, L19, or sorry, um, L1901 from a Czech company. I would have to look at it. But again, I could see myself building something like that. Right. Or better yet, do you do you remember again in the blister pack the O2? Yeah, the O2 is a good example because I don't think there's much better than that. I I don't think so. And and kind of like Mike, I'm going to try to do this sometime soon because I've got to build a Norseman for um, the Museum of Flight. We're doing a display. Forget what this display's on, but oh, I, I think it's. it's- uh, is it American musicians who were killed by the British? Yeah, so I'm going to do Glenn. That's exactly what it was. Thank you. 
Um, <laughs> it was just musicians, airplanes, and I want to do Glenn Miller. The The new 72nd scale Cessna L19 is by a company called AVI Models, which is affiliated with Rising Decals. Yes, I've seen that kit. And uh, I thought about buying one of those the other night, and then I said, I don't need more kits. Well, well, some people can't get enough kits, and some people collect kits. Yep. And that, that seems odd to, to model makers, to builders of kits, scale modelers, who I think are, if they were honest with themselves, especially the stash holders. Um, guilty. Guilty. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a nuance of intent. That separates a, a kit collector from a, <laughs> a, a, stash a, holder. a big stash holder, really, yep. right? Um, I think that's that's probably true. Uh, but some of these kits can get quite valuable, and and it's it's really not unlike collecting anything else, really. I mean, yeah. as a, as a model builder, like, well, why would you build a, buy a kit and not build it? Well, why would you buy a board game and not play it? Why would you buy a toy and not play with it? Um, it's a, uh, it's just a different mindset, and it gets back into the nostalgia of things. But it's 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 really, to your point, David, it, it's it's wrapped into the packaging and the marketing. Yeah, and that that's where that was the hook, that that brought in the fish, right? Yep, absolutely. Well, and and in regard to true kit collectors who do this not only because they have an interest in the box art and the, the, you know, the nostalgia of it, but they actually are interested in the financial side of it. You know, there are molds that no longer exist. The kits that have been built or then been molded and marketed and that mold for whatever reason no longer exists, period. I mean, some of those things are in very high demand. We were talking about uh, the plastic model dojo earlier, where somebody posted photographs of the kits of the $6 million man. Yeah. And <laughs> I remember those kits. I absolutely remember those kits. I, I loved the TV show. Lee Majors actually f- later filmed a, a, a movie in Lexington. Um I really like those kids. I wonder if those molds even exist today. That's a good question. I, I built one of them as a kid, but I, that was. Did uh, you really? That was Michael Carnaco who posted those pictures. Yeah, I built the one where he's smashing through the wall. Really? Yeah, I had that one. Huh. I did not have any of them. I, you know, but I, I had, I love the $6 million man too. I had never even seen them till he posted them in the dojo the other day. Oh, I remember the kits. I do. I, I mean, uh, you know, the TV show was phenomenally popular. Uh, uh, Lee Majors was married to Farrah Fawcett for a time, who was, of course, uh, extremely famous as well. I would love to know that if Atlantis or somebody has those molds today. Well, we've got a, a segment here with a, a gentleman who actually lives right here in Lexington. By happenstance, he runs a company called Old Model Kits, and he caters, caters primarily to folks I would probably call kit collectors. People are certainly nostalgia based. So uh, let's get into that interview and learn about that particular industry because I think it's it's kind of unique to our mindset as scale modelers. These folks who who might be more driven by 
the collectability of some of these old kits. Well, Dave, on this theme of nostalgia, a while back I discovered that uh, there was someone right here in town running a business called Old Model Kits right here in my on my own back door. Alan Bussey, proprietor and president of Old Model Kits. Alan, how you doing tonight? I'm doing okay. Thanks for having me here. Well, I, I appreciate you coming on, and I, I'll, I'll add that uh, in the time we've been conversing and getting this off the ground, you're actually a contributor to a magazine article uh, published in the uh, Air and Space Quarterly from the Smithsonian Institute Air and Space Museum, also dealing with old kits. Yes. When it rains, it pours. You can you can go for a year without doing anything fun like that, and then it all happens at once. Well, how about you give us a little bit of background about yourself and, and your interest in, in the hobby of whatever you got going on. I don't know if you're a builder or just a collector or just a, uh, a wheeler dealer in old plastic. Uh, tell us about yourself a little bit. Well, I'll, I'll start back with my start into modeling then, I guess. Um, my father, he modeled from the, um, the early to mid 40s. He started during World War II. He mainly built stick and tissue models from Comet, Gillows and even an occasional monogram speedy built, from what I understand. Um, my dad could not wait to get me started building models. <laughs> I, it's something that he always wanted to do with me. So when I was four years old, he comes home with this Lindbergh motorized pickup truck. All I remember is that it was blue and clear plastic. He assumed that I could read the instructions and put it together, and he gave me a tube of glue. And uh, that was a big mistake. And... <laughs> After smearing glue over everything and having my first experience with the infamous Lindbergh kit motor failure, um, this model lingered on the dining room table for I don't know how long until thankfully, unfortunately, one day it simply vanished. And I'm sure <laughs> it was in the trash because I destroyed this thing. So it was, but dad's not one to give up. So it was very quickly replaced by dad sitting next to me with a monogram Cessna 180 kit patiently showing me how you build and how you paint. So uh, the same lesson happened with the monogram Piper Tri-Pacer right after that. So after that, I was probably about five years old, and he just cut me loose. And if I wasn't shooting up things with a BB gun or riding my bicycle or reading about World War II military history, I was building a model kit, and I couldn't get enough kits. I wanted to build kits all the time. So I'd go out and I'd collect returnable pop bottles from uh, construction sites and turn them in at the grocery store. And some of my friends, uh, they would pity me and they'd ask me to either paint or paint and build their kits for them, which, of course, I gladly did. I, I'd do anything to work on a model kit. And even back then, I thought this was probably the greatest hobby that could ever exist. And I still feel that way today. Alan, if you don't mind me asking... How old are you? I'm 58, Dave. Okay. I'm 61, and I remember collect back when bottles were returnable, I remember collecting the bottles and taking them up to the grocery store to get the money, then then walk next door to the hobby shop to buy the kit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that's exactly how it went. The big bottles were 10 cents. Yes. The small bottles were 5 cents. Yep. As long as I didn't get distracted at the pharmacy that had a soda fountain, which was right in between the grocery store and the hobby shop, I'd make it down to the hobby shop and I could buy a kit. 
and and construction sites were the place to find empty abandoned bottles. Yes. And <laughs> we we lived in a booming town in Georgia. The town had just been founded. It was called Peachtree City and it was very small and they were usually building 40 or 50 homes at once. So it was yep. just a great place to get money that way. Yep, you and I had that common experience. Is that down near Griffin, south of Atlanta? It's about 45 minutes south of Atlanta, or at least it used to be. <laughs> Unless they moved it. Unless it's they moved probably, it, yeah. Well, it's probably yeah. been absorbed by Atlanta by now. Uh, maybe. Ooh, probably. My wife, was a her uncle's a retired Delta pilot, and uh, he lives in uh, Griffin down there. And I, We went to Peachtree City for something, so I know it's not too far away. Well, how did you transform into Kid Allen scrounging money, buying kits, building kits for your friends? and all that into this whole niche of vintage kit, secondhand kits and, and your, and your business, old model kits. I guess that is quite a reach to go from there to here. Um, well, if there's something of, of substance in between there, that's not, <laughs> that's not, I got out of the hobby because of girls and cars. Um, <laughs> go, go for it. But, uh, you can make the leap if you want. <laughs> De definitely. Definitely. Um, well, but before I do, though, I'd like to say how fortunate I feel like that I am to be still a part of this hobby. I mean, when I was young, I always wanted to own a hobby shop. That was my dream. But never, ever, ever did I think that this could ever actually happen and I'd be dealing with model kits full time, especially the kits that I built when I was young or the ones that I saw and wanted but couldn't get. Old Model Kits has been a blessing for a lot of different reasons, but one of the most remarkable to me personally is that I'm grateful for all the loyal customers, and they, oddly enough, are grateful to me for providing this service. <laughs> you don't get that very often where the customers tell you thank you. So personally, I don't think there could be a better business with better customers than this. Well, that's pretty cool. And, and how long have you been doing this? Well... I'll get back on track then. Thanks. Um, <laughs> when I graduated, I graduated from college in 87, but peace had broken out with the Soviet Union and the aerospace industry was dead. So like 99% of my graduating class, I couldn't get a job in what my education was for. So we all, we all got scattered to the wind, basically. And it started me on some interesting career paths. I ended up self-employed. And I always had a primary thing going, but I always had two things or hobbies going on the side. So one would be primary, two would be backups. So my hope was that the two things I would do on the side, one of them might lead to something better. So in 1996, secondhand model kits, i.e. the antique model kits that I had when I was young, that became one of my side hobbies. And... I just thought it was wonderful reliving having these, these kits that I had before, but even better, there were kits I didn't know existed, which was probably 95% of the kits. So I started buying these up and very quickly I ended up with duplicates. And then one day a gentleman uh, found out I was buying kits. He was from Chicago. He offered me 2,200 kits for $1,800. And I thought, well, I can't pass this up. So I run up to Chicago on a Sunday morning, get into town and get out before the traffic. 
and I get home and I have nowhere to put these 2,200 kits. And it struck me that I should probably get rid of some of these. And that's how everything got started. Well, now, when you did this, were you still actively modeling at all? Yes, but not as much as when I was younger. Okay. Do you still, to this day, build? Yes, I do build. Not as often as I'd like to, because the business is very demanding, about 70 hours a week, but I do still build. Okay. Because if you don't, it's kind of torture to be handling all these really cool kits and not getting to build anything. <laughs> so I, I did begin, I, I bought things on eBay. That was one of the main ways that I would build my collection um, back in the late 1990s. But around 2000, things started to change on eBay. Um, yeah. Kits would be advertised as never started and complete, but you would get the kit and it would be a highly started glue bomb that was missing half the parts. Sometimes a kit would be advertised factory sealed and it would show up and it would have a seal on it, but inside was nothing but sprue with no parts. Yeah. <laughs> and then sometimes the kit never showed up at all. So some of my collector friends and I, we'd get together and we'd complain bitterly about the state of affairs and everything. And the idea began to hit me that, well, what would happen if you actually sold kits that you inventoried as complete and they were exactly as you described them? It's a crazy idea, but it just might work. So in 2003, I put up the first website, if you dare call it a website. It was an extremely crude affair. I was out on the road doing um, management consulting, and this thing didn't have a shopping cart and it didn't have pictures. But it's what I did in the evenings in the hotel because your entertainment's limited in the Marriott. And on weekends, I'd come home, I'd inventory new kits, I'd pack sold kits, and I'd run to the post office and mail them. Now, old, old model kits, or OMK, really came into being in 2006. A friend of mine who was a webmaster convinced me that I should have a real website with photographs and a shopping cart. So after getting past being offended about my horrible website, Old Model Kits was born. And he did a fantastic job. Um, he's still responsible for the website today. And as time went on, much to our surprise, the business grew and grew. And my wife was a public school teacher. And that really wasn't what it used to be, even though she'd been doing it for 20 years. So she quit her full-time job first to do old model kits full-time. And I was really tired of being on the road doing the consulting. And about three years later, I was able to quit my job and go full-time with OMK. So we have been, we have been full-time with this, both of us and another couple of part-time employees for um, well over a decade now. Now, as, as eBay became less and less a source of kits for you, did you just start buying more collections? Yes. Yes. In, in, in about 2001, I decided I had to turn to buying all my kits another way. So how did you find these collections to buy? Well, um, other than the tremendous amount of work of going to shows and making contacts and getting to know people and handing out cards and flyers, and all those other things, um, there's always auctions and estate sales and things like that. It's, it's a lot of work to, to round up kits, and you spend quite a bit of time in total on it. 
looking through the article, you know, there's a, at least two, well, the other two guys who contributed in, in, in addition to yourself, Jeff Garrity of Rare Plane Detective is a, a fixture. We see him at the IPMS National Convention all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, Mustang Hobbies, I think. Jim Pentafalo, yeah. Yep. I'm a little familiar with him. I've bought something from him in the past. But, uh, um, yeah, buying collections, do you still do the shows much at all? You know, it. I did the shows early on in the early 2000s, and there just isn't the market for the antique kits at the IPMS shows that there is online. So I do, I do occasionally go to the shows like in Cincinnati and Columbus and in Indy just to buy. That's what I was going to ask if you if you're there as a as a buyer. I, I will go just as a buyer, but I have not probably set up since 2004 2005 at a show. It just honestly never worked out. Louisville has a show on September 17th. If you if you need a uh, new hunting ground, I have been to the Louisville show about three times, especially pre COVID. And even though it's a small show, that's an excellent show. I agree. And maybe that's how we became Facebook friends. I don't know. It could be. That's our uh, host chapter. Yes. <laughs> so we appreciate the compliments. <laughs> well, typically your customer base, what's that look like? Are most of them primarily collectors or builders or, or, or both? Like, I'm sure there's a spectrum of guys who are just hardcore Collectors want the original box art with all the parts in good condition, like any collector of anything would want. And, you know, to back up a little bit, you'll hear on, you know, Dave and I are, are primarily builders, you know, but let me let me finish here. Um, there, there is a very, very nuanced difference between a kit collector <laughs> and a builder. And it's it's this misconception of intent. Yes. I intend to build every model in in my stash. Even though it's humanly impossible for David yes. 12 other people to get it done. And, yes. and, and, and therefore, Dave is not a collector in his own mind because exactly. he does intend on building them all. Absolutely. Right. I, I, do not, I do not collect old kits. In fact, I tend to get rid of old kits when a newer kit of the same subject comes out. So, uh, yeah, uh, at least in my own mind, I'm a builder, not a collector. Uh, but when I'm dead, my wife is probably going to be phone giving you a phone call. <laughs> <laughs> so back to my question, uh, where, where do most of your customers lie on this alleged spectrum of uh, collectors to builders? Well, I'm, I'm glad you guys brought up the difference and you illustrated it far better than I could because... One thing I've discovered, it's insanely difficult to tell them apart. The actual number of pure collectors, people who are simply interested in the rarest kit, the best the best copy of the kit, the finest box art, you know, the value, et cetera, and the people who are pure builders and who dot, do not even have a kit stash, those numbers are very, very small from what I can tell. It seems that the vast majority, they say that they're builders, but of course, they become collectors by virtue of the fact that, well, this is out of production. I'd like to have two of them, one to build and one in case I mess the other one up. Yep, that's right. You got to have a backup. Yeah, you got to have the backup. But I think whether we want to admit it or not, when we get over a certain number of kits, 
to which it would be impossible to build all of them, then we are a collector, even though we're not ever going to admit it. Yeah. And I do believe that that's the vast majority of the customers for me personally, although honestly, it's difficult to tell. <laughs> well, it's that nuance of intent. I'm saying intent is the cobblestones to the road to hell. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's a great way to do it. It's a great way to put it. <laughs> yes, that's what it is. Because that, that's the switch in the mind. Well, with with these old kits and kind of in keeping with the, the theme of our overall episode that this is going into, um, there's a lot of nostalgia in these old kits. And, you know, looking through this article, it's it's there at every turn of the page just about. I printed this sucker out and they printed it out in like 20 point font for some reason. So I got a lot of pages. But one of the one of the big things that is mentioned and. And with our third co-host in this episode, we talked about a little earlier is, is the box art. So what can you say about the draw of the nostalgia, the, the memories, the childhood memories, the reliving the childhood uh, and the box art, things like that? Well, I, you nailed two of what I consider to be the big three. And when, when the big three combine, then what? that's what I call the magic about model kits that some of us have. And some of us that are just builders don't have. Um, number one, box art. And this isn't in any particular order. Number one, box art. Number two, the joy of reliving something that was extremely pleasurable in your childhood. Um, I'll give you my favorite example. A man writes in, he orders four Aurora Brooklyn kits, some of the most valuable. Uh, there was a zero in there that was $850, an ME109. It was close to $2,000 worth of kits. And you know what he did? When he got them, he sat down at the kitchen table. He opened them up. He got out an entire tube of glue, and he slapped them all together exactly like he did when he was six years old. And he said it was the most fun he's ever had. So number three brings us to the smells. You've got the smell of glue, and you've got the smell of paint. And if you're building stick and tissue, you've got the smell of the wood and the dope. Yeah. Right. So when when you're sitting there looking at great box art and you're putting together something that you really enjoyed or wanted to really enjoy when you were young but couldn't get it, and you've got all the smells associated with it, I think that's pretty much Nirvana. Do you have some of your customers, particularly the the pure kit collectors, who want not only a particular kit but a particular boxing of a particular kit? Yes. The the boxing is a major part in the value. If we're to speak as pure collectors, just for a moment, um, there is an investment side to it. Okay. And so the value of things certainly depends upon the issue. And to take this to an extreme, there are certain collectors who want to have the box art. They want to own the original painting that Joe Cotula did or Jim Cox did. Right. And that's, that's a whole nother part of the hobby, but it's uh, one that's pretty limited because there's only one of each painting. Right. Oh, yeah. Well, if you're you're, you're speaking of the original artwork. Yes. Yeah. 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 I've seen some of the Roy Cross paintings for Airfix go for big money. Really? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they're fabulous. Uh, the, the other day, I got to lay my eyes on something I never thought that I would see. The original Joe Cotula Aurora Merchant Raider Atlantis artwork. 
Oh, I remember that kit. You remember that? The rattlesnake in the ocean. Yes, absolutely. I can see the box in my mind right now. That is amazing. If I remember, the Atlantis has set two merchant ships afire that are out of range of her main guns. Um, Has the word Atlantis on the bow because it is a disguised merchant raider and is firing a torpedo at yet a third ship and is probably making about 30 knots. Yep. I got a question for you, and this is just purely, purely curiosity. It means nothing. What would you say is the ratio of aircraft to cars to tanks to ships that you sell? What's most in demand? Number one would have to be aircraft. Okay. Number one would have to be aircraft. And I'm going to give a qualified number two to tanks because I can never keep enough cars in stock. If I could keep enough cars in stock, they'd be number two, but that's not going to happen. And ships are insanely popular, but have become extremely difficult to get because they're always made in lesser numbers than the uh, aircraft. Now, is the reason you can't keep cars in stock is you have car guys tend to want to buy these kits and build them? Would you say that most of your car sales are to to actual builders rather than collectors? Well, the I'm going to answer that backwards. The actual problem is that I can't get the kits to start with. Really? Yeah, and now, now of course, we're talking about the older ones here. Right, I understand. Yeah, I just can't get them, and I honestly do not know whether there were that many fewer made than the aircraft kits, which are very plentiful. I, I can't answer that question. Or could it be that they did make as many car kits but the car kits always tend to get built. Yeah, I can see that. Interesting. Yeah, not not that that stops the car kit model builders from buying a built model that is a complete glue bomb that has eight coats of paint on it. They will buy and restore anything to a perfect model. It's almost like automotive restoration. Yeah. What they do is amazing. We would never consider <clears throat> doing that with an airplane. You know, that is true. <laughs> yeah, they are. They have a different mindset than other other genres of modeling, and that's not to be a disparagement at all. But they the model car crowd is 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 unique among them among the scale modeling community, in my opinion. It is, it is, and I wish I could cater to them more by having more of what they want. But for some reason, I simply can't find the kits. Hmm. Well, speaking personally from these old old kits, uh, what are some of your favorites and? your favorite kits or manufacturers and, and kind of what drives you to be attracted to them particularly? Well, um, <laughs> in rural, <All> of them. <laughs> in rural, yeah, yeah. That's a tough call. In rural Georgia, you can only get monogram Ravel and Aurora. And in my brain, there were no other model companies other than those three. So I really liked monogram. I liked monogram because of the fit, the finish, the realistic appearance and plenty of cool action features like folding wings and dropping bombs and retractable landing gear. My favorite monogram kits, uh, the SBD Dauntless, the Cessna 180, the Piper Tri-Pacer, um, the Phantom Mustang, and it, and it's it's modified Mold Sun, the 132nd F-51D action model. And um my father bought me a poacher one-eighth scale Rolls-Royce in the summer of 74 that oh, was wow. on sale at half price. And so I spent three months building that. That became an all-time favorite. 
that was an expensive kit even back in the day. It was $400 at Grant's, and we'd go there after church and look at it longingly, knowing that we couldn't afford it. And when Grant's went out of business, Dad said, get in the car immediately. And we made a beeline to Grant's, and everything was half price, and we got it for 200 That's a good dad right there. I don't know if your dad's still around, but you need to call him up and thank him. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I did that yesterday. Good for you. Uh, my father just passed this past April. and uh, Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, tell him again every time you talk to him. Thank you for all that he did. I, I, I do because what he did was amazing. And in return, now I send him any kit that he wants. <laughs> Unless it's a really valuable kit. Well, that, that, that leads into a question I was going to ask you. What is the white whale? What is the kit that is out there that you want to acquire, but you have yet to be able to find? Oh, boy. Um, I'm going to have to digress from plastic for just a moment to answer that question. That's fine. Okay. I've had a 1919 Ideal Model Aeroplane Company Curtis NC4. Okay. But what I really want is some of Ideal's first kits from 1911. And I'd like to have some kits from the Wadding River Company, which was right before Ideal Airplane Company. Um, I've collected the catalogs from these very first American aircraft modeling companies. And anything at all, even an empty box, is so incredibly rare for these things. And um, I, I only wish that I could get my hands on some of them. Um, as far as plastic goes... I've just been extremely fortunate that in the 110, 120,000 model kits that have passed through here, I have not seen everything, but I've seen all the ones that I was really anxious to see. Uh, for example, there's a giant Aurora sailboat. I forget the name of it. I've only seen the instructions for it. I've never even seen it in a catalog. I've never had one of those. I'd like to have one of those. Um, I'd like to have a Roby Atlantis, which is a remote control sailboat. But fortunately, um, a lot of the plastic ones, you know, the Ravel Space Station, the atomic power plants, the XSL-01, the big poacher cars, the big 116th Bondi cars. I've been fortunate enough to, to hold most of those and do the inventory on them and enjoy looking at them. You, you just tickled the nostalgia button. The atomic power plant. I remember acquiring that kit. I remember building that kit right after my Boy Scout troop had toured an atomic power plant. Wow. This is, this is in the 60s. So that's what's wrong with you. Oh, yeah, right. Radi radiation. <laughs> Complete with radioactive figures. Oh, man. No, I, 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 will, I will share that perhaps the best, most interesting model kit that I've ever had, it was better than that 1919 NC4, is through a friend of mine who was very, very kind to me. I ended up with the um, Ravel factory display model of the Arizona that was specially built for Mrs. Esther Ross, who christened the Arizona in 1915. And she went on to play a key role in the Arizona Memorial Committee. She went around the country giving speeches and fundraising for the existing memorial. And she, she always treasured that gift from Ravel and kept it in remarkable condition. 
um, brand new, 100% original, fully documented, and through nothing other than good luck that I probably did not deserve, I ended up with that model in the original box. Oh, my. That's amazing. And just, just to sit there and think that that was hers and look at pictures of her christening the ship and reading about all the work that she did with the memorial committee. Um, there's just a lot of history wrapped up in that piece. That's amazing. Well, two points I want to touch on. I don't know, looking at the article, if if it it came from your input or not, but maybe you can speak to them a little bit. The article quotes the fanciful box art of the 1950s came to an end at the beginning of the consumer protection era in the 1960s. That's a really interesting point. I didn't didn't realize that. I wonder if you knew anything about that or not. I know, like, Ravel and Monogram certainly switched – late 60s into the 70s when I was buying kits in the 70s uh, to photographic-based box art, if you can even call it art at that point, box illustrations, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other aspect of it is up until, well, fairly recently, I would even call, call it part of the demise of the American kit companies is that they were initially, well, they weren't initially marketed as toys. The, the marketing genius to sell them as many as they did in the 50s and 60s was to market them as toys mm-hmm. and i think i think at this point to a large degree the fine scale modeling community is mostly an adult community and most of the most of the modern stuff is 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 uh, catered to more adult or more mature hobbyists but originally uh a lot of this was marketed toward kids as along the toy avenue and they used toy distributors and that was their whole marketing avenue in there's their whole avenue into the market was through toy distributors and toy stores and mm-hmm. that department stores and that sort of thing. But this is this tidbit about the 1960s and the consumer protection agency changing, changing the whole bar, box art uh, era, I guess is kind of interesting. Do, do you know, can you speak to that at all? I cannot honestly say um, that I knew anything about that. I do know though, that the, the box art from the fifties matured in the sixties but it certainly didn't become significantly more realistic. I mean, we had all of Jack Linwood's um, work all through the 1960s with Ravel. We had monogram box art um, continued through with the blue boxes all through the 60s. Um, Aurora continued with the box art. Mm, you know, by, by the 70s, we had the monogram blue boxes with the pictures of the built kits, but Ravel and Aurora were still turning out box art. So, Mike, I can actually speak to that. The article misstates it by about 20 years. Okay. <laughs> that, that, that really came. In fact, you, you, Jim, and I were talking about this earlier in the episode. The Consumer Protection Agency, the, the model companies got spooked because the Consumer Protection Agency and Consumer Protection Laws. Um, you know, a lot of those box arts of the 50s, 60s, and early to mid-70s were inspirational. In other words, they would show the the aircraft in its situation, you know, maybe with other aircraft, et cetera, et cetera. And then all of a sudden, all of these companies got spooked because the box art shows things that's not that are not inside the box. In other words, other aircraft in the background, et cetera, et cetera. 
And I am convinced that that is what that forced a lot of these American model companies to go to photographs. And that really did, in my opinion, contribute to the decline of American models in as far as demand goes. Because when you look at photos of the models of Ravel or Monogram compared to some of the beautiful artwork that Hasegawa had on the box covers of their their kits. I mean, there was just no comparison as far as what what really drove you to be attracted toward one as opposed to the other. This is your lesson. The lawyers always mess things up. <laughs> <laughs> this may be a bad comparison, Dave, but I, I think you may have an excellent point there because... The, uh, the hobby shops would stock the earliest model kits in America right after the war, like 1946, 47, 48, 49. But there was no colorful box art, and these things were completely unattractive. And while there were a lot of other factors that got people going, like the highway pioneers primarily, not having good box art didn't help. And as soon as they figured that they needed to market these things, and as you were saying, um, especially to, to children, Mike, that had to make a big difference. So when they stopped doing that, why wouldn't that have an effect also? Yep, absolutely. Frog and Airfix were, and to a lesser extent, Matchbox. I mean, their box art was what I think pulled in a generation, post-World War II generation of modelers. I wouldn't doubt it. Do you have... now? Um, I'm thinking in the vein of American Pickers, if you're familiar with that show. Um, do you have an example of a, a really memorable vintage kit find or buy that you've done uh, that you could describe to us? Or are you mostly simply buying from established collections right at this point currently? I'm pretty much just buying from collections unless something else comes along, like a piece of um, original artwork or that factory model for Esther Ross of the Arizona. Pretty much it's just all collections right now. Um, I can remember one of the most exciting things that I did come across, though, was a Craft uh, Bell X2. I know that kit. I don't know that kit. It was, it was rumored that there was only so many hundred made. I don't know the specific numbers, but... Um, they were incredibly rare, and it is the only one that I've ever seen. Are you seeing more or fewer collections for sale? And conversely, are you seeing the demand side rising of late? That That's an extremely good question. Um, before COVID, the market was pretty strong. And during COVID, the selling market became about 30% stronger. It was all we could do to keep up. Um, at one point, we went from having about 7,500 kits in stock on the shelves for sale down to 2,800. We just couldn't put kits on fast enough. Now, at the same time, about six months into COVID, everyone had had time sitting at home to declutter. And so the greatest kit sell-off um, that I've ever witnessed, and I've only been doing this 25 years, there's people who have done it longer, but the greatest kit sell-off I had ever seen began. And I was a little bit hesitant at first, but the demand stayed high. So I went ahead and continued to buy. 
Now that kit sell-off has accelerated and I have no other excuse other than the economy. Yeah. Perhaps it's because of that. And people are, some people are mentioning the emails. I'm supplementing my income. I'm on a fixed income. I'm never going to build all these. I need to fix my roof. I need to sell some of these things like that. Sure. Um, The demand to purchase has dropped off slightly, which you would expect in this kind of economic climate. Sure. Now, is it way down? It's way down on eBay. Um, which is a good thermometer. My friends that sell very, very heavily on eBay say there is a tremendous decrease in what they're getting for kits. Um, I personally have begun to lower all my prices, which is what I did in the last two recessions. Well, sounds like you got your pulse on uh, the ups and downs. This is a good way to run a business. Well, well, you'd think I would have learned something by now. We'll see how it works. (laughs) I, I've actually met Jeff Garrity of Rare Plains Detectives uh, I, back when he was located in Las Vegas. I happened to be out there for a convention. I went out to his warehouse and got to interact with him. Uh, interestingly enough, while he models as, as a kid, he doesn't model at all anymore. This is just really purely a business for him. Now, how many other people are there? I mean... You know your, and I hate to say competitors, you know the other people in your market. How many really your size or larger old kit buyers and sellers who are doing it as a business are there? Well, I considered myself friends with almost all of them at one point. Um, There was a lot of them in in different sizes. Of course, there's Jeff, um, there's Dean Sills. And, you know, there's Paul, Paul Malam up in Chicago and ju- just a whole host of other people. The majority of these have retired. Um, my theory always was that there's a huge number of these kits out there, okay, and that there's no point in competing with anyone. Once, If I would find out that someone had asked Dean or Jeff to quote a collection, I would refuse to quote the collection just out of respect for them. And as a matter of fact, if there were kits that I didn't want to buy at the moment because I just had too many and I knew that Dean may have been interested in it, I would always send them to Dean. Interesting. You know, there's when we started this podcast, there were only two others. And now there's like, what, Dave, eight? <laughs> at least. At least. And and we, we all kind of have this uh, rapport between us. And in fact, we have a uh, kind of a consortium website that we we list all the banners of all the websites on who choose to play play with us in that fashion. So I understand that a lot. That kind of camaraderie is, is fun, and uh, it's kind of spreads it spreads it around for everybody. Well, life's too short for anything else, to be perfectly honest with you. And it's great it's great if we can call and you know trade instruction sheets or decal sheets or maybe even a, a rare part here and there just to help uh, somebody make something complete. Now, do you do you separately deal in decal sheets? I mean, particularly aftermarket or the only type of decal sheets you deal with ones in a kit that are in a particular kit box that somebody might might need or desire. Due to time restrictions, I don't deal with any decals that are not in a kit box, although I've got probably eight to 10,000 aftermarket decal sheets that have just come with collections that I've been um, hiding in a corner. 
And um, I keep thinking they're going to go away, but it just keeps getting larger. (laughs) (laughs) He's got more than you, Dave. So Uh, yeah. He if may anyone, well have more than if me. anyone wants eight or ten thousand microscale decal sheets. Oh, don't let me know. don't do that! Don't do that to me! Dude, <laughs> seriously, don't do that to me! You don't have enough, Dave. I have five hundred and fifty decal sheets. I listen to the decal sheets. Yes, uh, yeah, they're okay. calling you. Yeah, <laughs> you're a bad man. Oh <laughs> uh, well, Alan, this has been fun. Um, in, in closing, I, th- I want to give you an opportunity to, to plug your business in your own words and tell people how to get in touch with you if they got a big pile of kits they want to get rid of. Well, the website is oldmodelkits.com. There's no spaces, dashes, or anything like that. It's just oldmodelkitsrundogether.com. If you do have any kits or collections for sale, I'd appreciate hearing from you. There is a link on the website where you can contact me. Or you can just email me directly at oldmodels at yahoo.com. And again, old models is just run together, no spaces, no underline or anything like that. And of course, the website obviously sells kits too. That's how I put food on the table. We, we appreciate you one more time for, uh, Very for taking, taking time out to talk about this subject with us. Well, thank you for having me. It was great fun. I appreciate it. Well, guys, I'm going to need an old Matchbox kit to bring this full circle. I need their F9F4 <laughs> for uh, for the uh, Model Geeks group build. So I'm I'm going to kill to kill uh, two birds with one stone with that one. And I think uh, I think Alan's got that kit in his current catalog. So <laughs> I don't think I have one of those. Otherwise, I would send it to you. Oh <laughs> man, I. I can't wait to, for you to get that kit and open it up and look at it, and then we'll talk some more. Yeah, there we go. It, it, it's going to be blue and gray, and it's going to have solid wings and horizontal stabilizers. No, it's not going to be blue and gray. It's going to be overall blue. The kit may be two-tone, though. Oh, well, yeah, you're, you're right. <laughs> that being a matchbox, it, as far as we know, it could be pink and white. You know, yeah, I, mean, well, I don't it could be. The cool part about that one is it has folding wings. The Panther, yeah, I remember that. I had one of those. I, that was one of the kits I rebought as an adult, and I think I gave it to somebody I didn't like. <laughs> I'm but sure it's got the, sink, sink marks all over it. Yeah. By the way, that's another thing. I can't remember that I have to pick my laundry up Tuesday at the dry cleaner, but I can remember the details of kits that I built as a teenager that I haven't even seen the sprues in 40 years. It's amazing what gets embedded in your memories. Yeah, I would agree. Well, we've also talked to somebody at the IPMS national convention in Omaha, who's seen some uh, molds that nobody's seen since (laughs) we were teens or earlier. Yes. Uh, Peter Vetri from Atlantis Models. Uh, I recorded this, uh, Dave, while you were away from the table. I actually yes. took, the, took the equipment over to his his booth because he couldn't get away, and we chatted for a few minutes. Now, Atlantis is, man, they're sh- shoulder deep in nostalgia. Yes. Uh, n- nothing in their lineup is is new as far as tooling goes. Right. 
And it's a whole business based on nostalgia. So let's see what Peter had to say at the National Convention in Omaha. Well, I'm with uh, Peter Vetri of uh, Atlantis Models, and we talked at Las Vegas uh, a year ago, and I just thought I'd come by and get caught up with you, Peter. How's it been going? Oh, it's going great. Thanks for coming by. Uh, the show has been great. A lot of positive feedback. You know, people, the biggest thing we get is, oh, I remember building this kit when oh, yeah, I was yeah, a kid yeah. with my dad, <laughs> and it brings back those nice memories, you know, great memories. So that's really been the... Really, really nice to hear from so many different people. Well, what have been, uh, what have you guys been up to since Las Vegas? I, I see the Atlantis kit releases come across every now and then. Yeah, so I bet at Las Vegas now we've probably had about forty-five kits active SKUs in the line. I think now we are over seventy. Oh wow! So we've been really busy, which a lot. quite frankly, <laughs> yeah, it's it's a lot. I you know I like to keep it to like between 20 and 30 new releases a year and here we are just about a little more than halfway through the year we already came out with 26 oh wow so, but it takes up a lot of room and you know in the warehouse so we'd like to uh but we had an issue last year one of the things since the show that really developed was getting the boxes printed oh yeah getting the, the board for the boxes there was like you know some supply chain issue and so when we had a chance to make them, we did make a lot, and that kind of threw us off a little bit. But I guess you got to get it when you can get it. But now it seems to corrected itself out, that box issue. Uh, give me an example of some of the stuff that's come out since Las Vegas. Is there any? I've uh, seen some dragsters down here. Were those, uh, yeah, the fire, those available before? Fireball, those no, the Fireball dragsters new. I think the Moon Eyes has come out. Uh, the Tom Daniel Troublemaker, the 57 Chevy, the Jungle Jim uh, Camaro Funny Car. I want to think that the Snoopy, yep, all the, the Red S- Baron for sure. Yeah, the Isn't Snoopy. That, that new uh, this last year? No, I think we had the Red Baron and the Sop with Camel, but okay. now we have the Snoopy uh, Joe Cool Surfing and Snoopy in his race car. So those ah, okay. are the two, two new Snoopy ones. Yeah, we had a couple of new ships, some new planes. Um, what else? I was just, I had, uh, we did announce about 20 new kits that are coming. Okay. Uh, but that will probably be more early 2023. Okay. So, um, a few more months out, six yeah, months or so. All kinds of stuff, all planes, uh, a lighthouse. We got this year, we'll definitely have the big Jungle Gym 116th funny car coming. Oh, wow. That should be the end of August. Now, who kitted that originally? Ravel. Okay. Yeah, Ravel did the 116 dragsters. And then we have uh, the monogram originally did. We have the uh, four snap Tom Daniel funny cars. Oh, wow. Which is the whiplash, the fake out, the ripoff, and the uh, fiend. Those are the names on the cars. And for those, we did. All new artwork and all new decals by Tom Daniel's son Kelly, who's really—he's <laughs> a great artist. So we've been working well, with that's him. That's exciting. A lot. Uh-huh. Uh, things been going well for the company. Everything's I been mean, going well. I guess well. that many releases, sure, certainly. Yeah, that, that's it. You know, the, the market is driven by new product. So, um, but we are, st- are you guys still clawing through a back catalog of old tooling? Oh yeah, that will never <laughs> end. That will never end. There's a. Uh, there's a lot there to go through, so, but it's time-consuming work, careful work, dangerous work. So, yes, I'm sure. Um, I've worked around injection mold tooling before, and it's yeah, big, so, heavy stuff. You know, there's a lot. We're always on the hunt for more. Always we, on the hunt for have more. Have you found any Easter eggs in all the tool acquisitions? Uh, Maybe that, you don't want to tell me right no, now. But. Nothing I really want to tell, but there's been some surprises, some okay. good, some bad. Um, <laughs> but, uh, 
you know, the open, rust never sleeps. So like I'm sure something the like the Nike missile. I don't know if I mentioned this to you last year. I forgot. So forgive me if I'm repeating it. But when we opened up that tool, it was missing the feet, the base. We couldn't figure just that one cavity was just taken out. Okay. So we had yeah. to make that make was a, a new cavity. Thirty-eight hundred dollar uh, correction. <laughs> yeah. So we, but we did it. But if anyone knows, just so you know, then you see the base on the Nike, the feet. Those are new tools. They're not the original, but they look just <laughs> like them. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, everything's been going good, and you know we're working hard, and uh, lots of good kits coming out, and uh, always trying to find new venues and retailers to offer plastic model kits in the physical world. That's you right. Know, you want to go online, you find them, but you're walking down a lot of streets, you don't see hobby shops, you no. don't see. Some of the major stores don't carry them, so... I think I've seen a lot of this in Hobby Lobby. Yeah, Hobby Lobby's probably one of the few big chain stores that still has a good dedicated aisle to yeah. models. And but beyond that, there. there's not much. So, to me, that's a problem. So, we're always trying to figure out what we can do. And a lot of the time is... A lot of times it's a problem because... Not because the stuff won't sell in the store, because it will. Excuse me. It's because the buyers in these stores don't know enough don't about know modeling. Product. That's don't right. know the hobby. That's right. That's so they they have to be educated. So I mean, we have to figure out a way to do that. Some of this great box art on these vintage kits. Yeah, uh, I'm sure yeah. that helps sell it. Yeah, absolutely. We're in, <laughs> we're in the nostalgia, nostalgia business. business. That's, right. That's right. So well, cool. Yeah. Uh, you talked a little bit last year about possibly some completely new tooling. Uh, we have, you know, we've been making new tooling to make older tooling better. Okay. Where there's some kits don't have, weren't, we just did the, uh, glass for the 56 Cadillac, which right. is coming out. Okay. So that never had glass in it. And now it does. We can't put a car out without glass in it. It just <laughs> doesn't make silly, sense. Right? So things like that we've been doing, okay. but we have been talking about some completely new tooling of subjects that have never been done before okay. that's what we want well, to do. that'd be exciting to have something coming new from, from somebody else hopefully next time we talk i'll have really something concrete yeah but that should be definitely happening for sure all right well peter i won't keep you too long and everybody's gonna be packing up here yeah it was a good show and you know we had a great time and uh thanks a lot i appreciate you stopping by the booth all right thanks peter take care take it easy Well, guys, everything old is new again, they say. I don't know about some of these kits, but uh, is there any closing comments on on nostalgia and scale modeling uh, you want to make? I think it's a great motivator if, you know, diff different people build for different reasons. And, and you know, uh, if if this brings joy to you to get an older kit or even to build it, I think that's great. And anything that gets people modeling. so. To me, even though, again, for me, life's too short to build old kits, I I understand the attraction. If it works for you, great. Jim? Well, the idea I've always run across is kind of what I want to do is go back and build like Dooley Bird, the Mustang from the Matchbox box art, or I want to build the Corsair with the green bands. But I'm going to take modern kits. So uh, my thought has always been, uh, try to find uh, modern kits of each of these and build them as the box art, and that would be my nostalgia build. Well, that's one angle. That, that'll that get you an easier build probably for sure. There you go. <laughs> well, for me, I, I, yeah, I've got a couple on my hit list. I've, I've accumulated several of old Airfix kits that I always wanted but never got. 
mostly their 70 second scale patrol boats. I've got all three of those now. I've got I've got their 30 second scale M3 Lee. And I've got Monty's Humber in 30 second scale, or his staff car. I've got that as well. I, yep. I've I've got a I've got a pretty good stack. There there's one kit, it's it's of Airfix Origin. It's one of Dave's love profile series. It's their uh their A7 Corsair. Yep. I started that as a kid and ended up bending the thing. So that one is on my list to buy again and have another go at with uh, adult mic modeling skills. Do know that Fujimi makes very nice A7 kits I, in 70 I, seconds. It's, it's scale, not right? a matter of wanting an A, a nice A7 model. Okay. I it's just wanted matter, to tell you. It's a matter of finishing that one I started and failed at. Gotcha. <laughs> the problem I've got is Airfix is reissuing their 124 scale Harrier. And I oh, always no. wanted that as a kid. And that is something that I could see myself buying and never building because there's no way, even today, my skills could do that kit justice. Oh, that, that is not an easy kit. Nope. All right. We'll save that one for another time, Jim. Well, that pretty much wraps up the nostalgia, I think. So uh, let's get on down the road. You got it. Inside the Armour is a specialist publisher of scale modeling books. Recently, the latest book I've published is Modeling AFV Club Armour. Despite the title, it's a general guide to modeling armour with artists such as David Parker of AFV Modeler, David Chow, Ken Abrams, Jose Brito, Mark Neville, and myself, covering M113s to Centurions to Churchills and more. It's your perfect guide to modeling your armor to the highest standards, including build, paint, weather, and presentation. Other titles include Perfect Pits, our guide to getting the most out of your scale model cockpits, a highly popular book that's nearly sold out, so get them while you can. We also stock a range of products which I've discovered and loved and decided to sell because they're so good, including Nichiban masking tape, Tetra Model PE, Seals Models ships, Yamashita Hobby ships, and Wingsy kits. New to us, 148th aircraft from Wingsy of Ukraine. We're doing our best to support the company at this difficult time, and it's not difficult when there's such fantastic kits. So head on over to InsideTheArmor.com to see what we have that you might want to pick up right now. So, guys, we're getting to the end of the episode. I'm assuming that uh, modeling fluid has been consumed. Let me start first by saying, again, I'm not a rye guy. I, I much prefer bourbons to rye. I tend to find rye a little too, for for want of a better word, spicy, but that's probably not the right descriptor. But, boy, this Templeton four-year very, very nice. I mean, you put an ice ball in it and it melts beautifully. It 80 proof. It's not overly hot. Um, it doesn't have a lot of the flavor notes that a bourbon has, but by the same token, it was very, very drinkable and was enjoyable throughout this episode. So I can give the Templeton four-year rye a thumbs up. How about you, Mike? Ah, the High West Double Rye. It's a rye blend, it's 92 proof from Park City, Utah. If you gave us this 
please let me know. Concur what Dave has to say about the spice notes. That that's with without a doubt. Um, it's almost like cinnamon, but not quite. Not quite that much spice, but enough to give you that kind of sensation on the palate. Uh, this one's it's a double. It's it's good. It's drinkable. It it must have been because we we actually opened this in the Mojo Dojo in Omaha, but now it's absolutely one hundred percent gone. So, uh, obviously drinkable by me anyway yes we're working our way through these that's right um yeah i would have this again uh but like dave it's it, a rye is is spicy you know i like bullet bourbon which has as much rye in it as you can have in a bourbon and still call it a bourbon right and that's that's about my limit yeah um i think it has more flavor than this but this is a lot different if you're looking for something different High West Double Rye, go for it. It's in a nice, tall, thin, embossed glass bottle. they got nice packaging. Uh, I like that a lot. Yeah. Uh, give it a shot. So, Jim, Jim, how was the tea? Hey, it's it's Emperor Cloud's green tea from Starbucks. It's always good for me. But now, you guys did make me flash back to my college years of Long Island iced tea. Um, I'm not sure as a 50-year-old man you should be drinking that, but uh, I remember those being damn good. Did you find yourself more relaxed and at peace with the universe? I am so zen right now, man. You got no idea, eh? So, uh, guys, do we have any shout-outs for the end of the episode? Well, I'll start. We need to shout-out a couple of Patreon contributors. Paul Gallagher and uh, Henry Hamerde. I've both joined the ranks of our contributors through through Patreon. Uh, if you'd like to support the show, and uh, if you've thought about doing that, to consider doing it now, you could you can make a recurring contribution through Patreon at www.patreon.com/slash/plasticmodelmojo. You can contribute anything from a dollar on up, and it will bill you monthly for that. And uh, keep the recurrence coming. Uh, you can also you can contribute through PayPal by going to our our website www. PlasticModelMojo.com. There you will find a heart icon in the upper right-hand corner of the screen. You can click that. It'll take you to PayPal, and you can make a one-time contribution or manage your own recurring contribution there. And it's all very much appreciated. It really has gone a long way to help us improve the show and to keep things current and to keep us moving forward. So thank you very much. Jim, you have a shout-out? I've actually got two, if that's okay. Um, As I said earlier... I screwed up Friday night and forgot to um, even think about reserving a hotel. And I mentioned, I think it might have been in the in the dojo, and Bruce Worrell uh, from uh, Kingston, Ontario, reached out and said, I can sleep on his couch if he wants. So that was kind of cool. Uh, Bruce is somebody, he's, I think, uh, Canadian Army, and we had met him for the first time at the Nats in Omaha. He's Evan's minder. Yes, he was he was Evans uh Evans uh what do they call that when you're young and they put you on an airplane um he was Evans escort or body man. Yeah, there you go. And the other one was the other night I was on YouTube and ran across a gentleman in Switzerland who I'm not convinced that he is the Swiss version of of a scale Canadian. Um his name is Chris Vea, and he has a YouTube channel called The Rusty Scale Show. It's kind of insane. Um, it's totally awesome. He has done some true model building, which even I've never done, um, and, rec- and put up a couple videos on the Airfix Wildcat. And 
I was a little shocked because he's only got about 300 subscribers and I thought he was really funny and I just want uh, people to check him out. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of uh, the Swiss uh, craziness that you get from me. Well, my sh- uh, shout out of the month is to our previous guest, Steve Hustad. As As you know, Steve was one of my modeling heroes, one of the people whose work I admired. And only through this podcast did I actually get to begin interacting with him. And Steve has been very, very gracious, uh, uh, not only to come on the podcast and to talk about different subjects, and we're going to have him on it again in the future, but he's also been gracious. Uh, uh, We've been emailing back and forth. Uh, He's been telling me information he had or he found regarding the ICM Sally that ICM is is supposed to release in the third quarter of uh, 2022, but uh, just been very generous with his time and with uh, being willing to put up with the all the myriad of questions that I have for him. So I do want to shout out Steve and thank him for being on the last episode and tell him we're looking forward to him coming back uh, in the future. All right. Anything else? Can I do one more? Oh, you got another one? Yeah, I just, as, as every time I come on, I want to thank you guys for having me and thank you for doing this. Uh, the Moj is awesome. The Dojo's awesome. And, and thank you. And I also want to say if um, you have heard stories about the FBI raiding the Dojo in, um, in Omaha, it's 100% true. I was there. There were like 50 <laughs> guys in FBI sweaters. And I swear they were carting Dave off, but he's back. So I don't know what that's about. Yeah, I went. I ended up in a black site, and I had to escape with the help of some ninjas. Uh, you didn't have uh, you didn't have Snake Plissken helping you out. No, they had, they had Australian accents though. <laughs> Snake Plissken, I thought he was dead. <laughs> Very good. Thank you, Mike. I think we've reached the end of the episode. We've reached the end day for sure. As we always say, so many kits, so little time. All right, guys. You have a good night. You too. See you later.